Hey, welcome to Pull the Thread Podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Douglas. I'm a celebrity tailor, a wild mustang tamer, and an entrepreneur. I managed to take a Brother Project Runway Home sewing machine and built a six-figure sewing business that supports a life I love, and I hop behind the mic to show you that you can do the same thing too. I am documenting all of my experiences in building my own little honey empire, complete with mess ups and mistakes and experiments and celebrations so that you can shortcut to success faster. So you ready? Let's dive into the episode. Welcome back to episode 10 of Pull the Thread podcast. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode because I have a guest um, and technically I am the guest uh, and I'm being interviewed on my friend Ko's, his podcast. So he has this podcast called Confused Confucius. He's a sports psychologist living in Amsterdam and we became friends years ago through Gary Vee and all just all of the things that had happened in 2020. And so um, I, I'm really excited to share our conversation because that's what this is. It feels less like an interview and more like a conversation between two friends. And so this episode, we dig into how I got into sewing and my career coming out of college and changing my career path. Uh, if you didn't know this, I started out in PR and marketing and concerts and um, logistics. And so my whole background was in the music industry and I graduated with a music business degree and a PR minor. Um, and digital media minor too. Um, I had a double minor um, before hopping into being a business owner. So completely out of left field change. Um, And while I'd always been sewing, I had never tried to like make money from it until college. Um, And so going from a full Uh, like a full all in, I'm going to be in the music industry. My goal is a corner office and I want to, you know, work in entertainment full time. Um, That completely changed to being, I kind of want to just work from home and I want to costume rock stars. I want to do that job. Um, And so we talk about the transitioning period between the two things. And then we get into the mindset stuff. Uh, Coz is brilliant when it comes to mindset and the psychology behind why we do what we do. And so we get into the mindset of charging for our work. Um, and then we talked about some spontaneous and calculated pivotal moments, uh, pivotal moments on money mindsets. Uh, so from there, the conversation sort of naturally evolves into balancing logic and emotion and creative. So we're getting super, super deep here. This is a long conversation. This episode is going to be a little bit longer than they normally are. So you might have to split it up between two commutes or just choose one big long project for the day because this episode is going to be close to an hour long. Um, After we cover balancing, we also talk about the value of pricing creativity, um, how to price it, uh, and how how we come to the prices, uh, and then how money affects doing what you love. And then we talk about setting boundaries for the projects that you take on, and time allocation in creative and production and in business, because it's so, so, so difficult to decide just how much energy gets awarded to each project and how much time gets awarded to each project uh, from a creative perspective, but also from a business perspective. So we share tips. Um, I give you a tip that I started out um, with when I started my creative business. Uh, And then we also talk about the psychology and the emotion behind working for love versus from love. Um, And we talk about scaling and learning to love the, just the process of it all. Um, We also delve into leadership um, because I have a different mentality behind the way that I lead and and guide a team 
Um, and so we go from commanding and we shift to serving. And so we delve into a lot of stuff here. We talk about mental fatigue and moving forward regardless of what the pace is and also how to delegate creativity. Um, so we we go over a lot here. I'm really, really excited about this and get to kind of share the mental aspects of why we do what we do because I feel like oftentimes entrepreneurs give you every success hack and tool and business process but they never delve in or elaborate or kind of open up their head to you and just share their heart and share their head of, of, of where they're at behind the idea. Um, so we, I, I open up a lot with Coz on this. It helps that we're friends. Um, but yeah, I, I can't wait. I want to know what you guys think, but let's go. Let's dive into the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Today, I got with me Crystal. Crystal, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And I am curious to start off, how did you get into suing? Because it's not the most common practice to get into. It's not, is it? It's such an odd thing. And I think, I think for me, it started out like it's a legacy thing. Uh, my great aunts do it. Um, and so they live in Eastern Tennessee, like up in the foothills. Um, so they were all just like farmers. So my great aunts all sewed um, and they would quilts and they would make quilts out of their their dresses and their clothes and everything to like physically keep them warm <laughs> um and what happened is they ended up making them um they ended up making them as presents for each person that graduated high school in our family um and so in the summer i would come up from florida and i would visit them and i would be watching them quilt and put together little squares um, and so then when I went home, my mom said, yeah, we have a sewing machine, you know, and so she pulled it out and she started teaching me like the fundamentals, the basics of it. Um, and I just kind of started making different things. And so I've sewn for over 20 years, um, but I really didn't look at it as like a profession or something that would make me money, you know, until after college. Um, I mean, I made some, I made some money off of it during college, just making small products and selling them online, but I didn't see it as a potential career path until much much later mm. so so that's that's where it started ah, okay and you say you, you didn't even consider it as a career path coming no. out of college or high school what what were your plans if you had any so i went to school this is hilarious i went to school for a music business so for mm. entertainment um, and that's where I started working was in PR for the music business. Mm. Um, and so I, like, I moved to Nashville. That's where I'm at now. Started working at a PR company on Music Row. Um, left there and then started working in live entertainment. Um, so actual concerts. Um, and so I started doing the logistics for concerts back in 2013, I think. 13 or 14. And so I started doing that and it kind of just got bigger and bigger to the point where I was running the logistics on like stadium shows um, and the crews and, you know, the load ins and the loadouts and, and all of the little details that make the shows happen from the lighting to the audio to um, the wardrobe department. And um, it was funny because I would be hiring people to go in and push cases and, and do wardrobe. And then I'd kind of be wondering the details was like, what's going on in there? What's uh, in that box? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because that excited me, but it's never something that I went to school for. And so, you know, now I'm working in fashion and I'm the one person that doesn't have a fashion background. So, you know, I have mm -hmm. a live entertainment background. Um, and so, you know, I started dabbling and 
all of the while, I would still sew little things, you know, I would sew a hoodie for my dog, you know, I would sew a dress, like little stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't looking at it as an income thing. Um, And fast forward, when I decided to leave live entertainment, I was getting stressed out. I was getting stomach ulcers. I was carrying three iPhones on me at all times. Mm. Like it was insane. Um, I remember, I think we'd worked like 43 Sundays in a row. Um, we could talk about American work culture. Uh-huh. Like it is literally, you know, work to earn it. Um, so I was in, I was in the office like seven days a week forever, just getting the job done. You know, Nashville became the hub for concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had events going on every single day, all day, all night, you know? And so overworking to the point where I was just going like, man, there's got to be another way. And here I am like itching to sew on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so I decided to take a step back. And when I, I left that job, at that point, I had known so many different uh, production directors and tour managers um, and and different people in entertainment who throughout the years would be like, Hey, can you sew this patch on a vest for us? Or, Mm. Hey, you know, somebody's got something that needs to be fixed. Cause you just mend this really quick in my sleep. Yeah. Uh Um, and my skills got better, you know, like, so even on the job, you already were improving. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I would get more and more confident about hemming a friend's bridesmaid's dress, you know, like little stuff. And, um, when I quit, I started getting those calls back to back like just different friends now in entertainment who would go, Hey, can you fix this? Hey, can you fix that? Hey. And then it finally came to a point where I had a production manager call me and go, we've heard you got some free time (laughs) (laughs) and we need a backdrop sewn for a band. And it's like 40 feet long. Um, And at this point I had already had like a full garment rack of different dresses and clothes and stuff that needed to be bended or altered. Um, and they said, no, it's, it's big, but we need that, you know, to go on tour and it all needs to be sewn. Um, and I said, yes. And I got off the phone and I was like, I gotta figure out how to do this, Mm. you know? (laughs) And that came, there was a lot of it was just like saying yes, because the curiosity overtook me, you know, it wasn't because I knew what I was doing. It was because I was so curious to figure Mm. out how to do it, that I had to say yes and figure it out later. Yeah. And 40 feet is not a, a small feat. No, and it's geometry, you know, it was like pendants and uh, hexagons and like, you know, it was odd Mm. shapes. And like when you do that at scale, you know, it's not just sewing a little dress, you know, it's, it's fabric bends and manipulates and moves. And so the bigger it gets half an inch, if you go down five feet becomes eight inches, Mm. you know, if you're half an inch off at the top, the angle, (laughs) your, your mistakes are, are magnified. Um, so yeah, it was like a learning curve really, really quick in terms of scale. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's kind of like sink or swim, you know, you're thrown into the deep end and figure it out and you really, really learn the tiny details that matter, you Mm -hmm. know, um, because in sewing it's, it's a half inch seam, you know, when you fold it over, you could be two inches short if you fold it over wrong twice, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, so those details all came into play. And so I said, yes. I figured it out. It took me a whole month to make it, you know, and in the meantime, I ended up signing my first commercial lease on a little room in Music Row with carpet floors. And like, mm-hmm. if you sew, carpet floors does not work well for you because all of the thread falls and sticks to it. Yeah. And then your your pins and needles go missing in the carpet and you step on them nonstop. Uh, and so it was an adventure, but I look back on it and I'm so, so happy because it like 
it taught me so much. And it was like, it was a really low overhead for when I got, you know, the cost of the rent was so cheap. And it was like one fluorescent light bulb in the middle of the room <laughs> and like gray walls, gray ceiling, gray everything. Uh-huh. And like, you know, and so it was a, it was a really great adventure. And that was getting started. That was moving into that space. And, um, you know, it's funny because I did that one project for what would be considered for experience. I mean, I got paid, you know, and it paid the mm-hmm. bills and everything, but, um, for, for next to nothing compared to what I would charge now for a project of that size. And, and it was basically like getting paid for an education, a crash course in something that mm-hmm. a lot of people go to school for it and they wouldn't learn the the micro details, you know, to, to, to what I learned in that one month. And so that was my crash course. And after that, the word of mouth really kept me going and grew me to this point. Ah, wow. So you really hit the, the ground running on it. Mm-hmm. That is Full amazing. Speed. Full speed. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it's crazy. yeah, it sounds like uh, the opening scene of a movie, especially if you <laughs> picture the, the, all the gray walls and just stitching that. One all fluorescent up. light bulb. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yep. yep. So you actually already answered one of my questions, which is uh, what your first project was starting out and how you get started. So yeah. from what I, from what I'm hearing, you basically rolled into it from your other job when you took some time back or how, how did that transition period turn out? Yeah. You know, there was actually like a micro step in the middle of there. Um, as I was quitting, as I was leaving that full-time job, um, I had a friend and this is like word of mouth marketing is so incredible, but, um, and, and I've been able to duplicate this exact same thing across my mastermind, actually asking different people to try the same thing and see what happens. Um, so I had a friend comment in a a post on Facebook Mm -hmm. inside of a group for a local community, uh, like, like the way, uh, so Nashville has different areas, different neighborhoods. Right. And so there's a Facebook group for each neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, so a friend of mine had commented on a post of somebody looking for a seamstress of just to, to hem a dress. Um, and my friend had commented me. Um, well, so what happened was I ended up tailoring that person. And so I obviously, I, before I had had the, the workspace to go to, I was just driving to individual people's houses. Um, and so I went to her house, I pinned it up in her living room, I took the dress home with me, and I brought it back a week later. Um, and somebody had commented on that post and said, Hey, yeah, she did amazing for me. Thank you so much for the recommendation. And then I got another phone call or another Facebook message mm-hmm. saying, Hey, I saw, you know, two people had mentioned you in this group. Um, is there any way that you'll do mine too? Well, fast forward six months, I had that entire community using me as their seamstress. And every mm-hmm. Tuesday I would drive over here and then I would, I would fill my entire Jeep full and I literally was on an empty tank of gas driving around East Nashville so broke and like picking up all of these dresses and jackets and pants and different things that needed to be mended hanging them in the rack in the back of my jeep mm-hmm. bringing them home uh, doing all of them on my bedroom floor because I didn't even have a full-size ironing board I had like a travel ironing board mm. um, and like laying things out on the floor and cutting them on the floor and then bringing them back the next Tuesday and dropping them all off. And so I'd planned it like an artist would plan a tour. I would be like this Uh, house and then this house right next door and then this house. And at this point I can drive around that community and know exactly who, like who lives where, you know, because I'd, I'd hemmed, yeah, I'd hemmed all their dresses. So, so that was the in-between step, you know, and it really, 
it really helped me get to know my neighbors and I get to know my community and, and the word of mouth spreads, you know, and it's, it adds credibility like that social proof. Um, and so that was another step in between there. That was a different, a different audience, but what it did was it added credibility in my head, you know, because I needed to see that validation a little bit. I needed to see other people say, yeah, she's good enough. You know, when I had no formal training. Yeah. And talking about, starting off and getting the experience and the validation what was it like to start charging for your suing because at first from what i understand mm-hmm. it was just a side project and you you charge a, a little bit but how did that mm-hmm. develop and how did you feel about asking for something that always felt like a hobby yeah you know and there's even more mental work behind that too it's not just that it felt like a hobby but um when I learned to sew, I learned because my great aunts did it as a labor of love. Um, And so when we, when we do hobbies and things that we were taught and that's imprinted in our heads, that that's a labor of love, or that's just, that's something that you do for your own enjoyment. You feel guilty charging for your work. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, you, you feel these weird senses of guilt, like, like, because you're emotionally tied to it. And the recognition, the, the realization came from from um, seeing that the person hiring you is not emotionally tied to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there the tr- mm, currency is energy. You know, uh, money is, is just energy. It, it's, it's a currency, you know, and energy is too. And so for us, like when we're asking for money for something and we're emotionally tying it up into this thing and other people are not, like you had to separate those feelings and come to terms with the fact that, um, you know, the people who taught you that hobby um, they're not doing it for money, you know, and, and I'd had that, re- that realization when I was talking to my great aunt once, and she'd said that she'd made a suit for a woman, um, completely as bespoke. And I said, um, how much did you charge her for that? And she said, $10. I think I charged her $10. <laughs> um, and I was just like, this is when I was already profiting, you know, and wow. at that point I'd, it, it hit me and it made me realize that this is why I'm feeling all these guilty feelings is because I was trying to stand in her shoes and not stand in my own, mm-hmm. you know, and realize that I'm trying to build a business here. Um, but yeah, I started out really, really low um, to the point where I had people going like, oh my gosh, no. And and when I really realized I needed to start increasing my prices was when people were tipping me on top of it, mm. um, like tipping me for the service. Um, and I didn't know for a while if maybe they thought that that was like expected. Um, in America, it's a tip economy. Um, so if you get your hair cut, you know, you're going to expect a tip on top of that because a good portion of that's going to the salon, you know, but for me, you're either coming to my house or I'm coming to yours, you know, and then it got to the point where I had people genuinely saying, you need to charge more, you know, and I had to start looking around and going, I don't want to charge more, you know, like, I just, I love this so much, you know, and so there was a, a lot of time that passed, I think, that I undercharged for my services um, until I started calculating it out and realizing, okay, if you continue to charge this much, you're going to need to work 90, 80 to 90 hours a week to make what you used to make. And then how different is this from what you were doing before, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, I had to really come to terms with those feelings and come to terms with, uh, with value and perceived worth, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think it's, it's crucial that turning point and you still remember it very clearly. I mean, I don't know about the inflation at the time, but $10 for a, for a full suit. That's, I, I take that deal <laughs> and I, I, I feel bad taking it as, as well. Like you said. 
Yeah. I mean, well, and that wasn't even 15 years ago that she made that. And now people charge thousands of dollars for bespoke suits. Mm, oh, wow. That was not, that's crazy. That was not years and years and, you know, that wasn't decades and decades ago. That was, mm-hmm. feels like now. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I heard two things. You said there's, there was this one moment where you had this insight like, oh, wow, um, I'm, I'm going a different route. And at the same time, you also had a moment where you actually sat down and calculated. But mm-hmm. can you get it? I made an algorithm now. Now I, I go off of, I have an actual equation that I look mm. at. Um, and what I do is uh, I decide how many projects I want to do per year. Mm-hmm. So when I got into costuming for artists, because that's what this became, now the business is, has three divisions. And obviously this year went a little wacky, but... The three divisions um, served live entertainment. So one of them is costuming. So we make costumes for the stage for artists. Another one is the soft goods, like the backdrop that I had made. Mm-hmm. And then another one is doing hem tags and patch application um, for the merch that artists take on tour. Um, I decided when I got into the costuming aspect that I only wanted to work on one costume per month. So if I only wanted to do 12 costumes a year, because I wanted to take my time and actually give them something that was quality, then if I factored in the cost of taxes, how much time it actually takes me, so how much I want to earn per hour, um, and you can reverse engineer this to go, oh, I'm making this much per hour. Um, What I did when I first realized this was I was like, oh, to barely make a livable wage, I'm working 90 hours a week, and people are telling me that I need to raise my prices, you know, so you need to come to terms with that here. Yeah. But when I decided the number that I wanted to reach, I reverse engineered it back and went, okay, if I want to reach that number after you take out taxes and I only want to do 12 projects per year, then I'm dividing that number by 12 after factoring in taxes. Mm -hmm. And that's my new rate, you know? And if I want to break it down, I can even, I can even divide it by how many hours I spend on that one project and show them, Hey, this is what I'm charging you hourly. Um, and I think I needed that math to separate the, you know, the, I needed that math to separate the emotions from the mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really solid approach. And in psychology, actually, usually it's separated as well. You have the cognition side, which is really about the thinking and more the prefrontal cart- cortex. And then the limbic system, the emotional side is more the mm-hmm. core of the brain. And it's actually usually in therapy separated as well. So it's cool that you figured that kind of that out on your own. That's a, uh, that's a really good years job. before starting therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, another thing that I'm curious about, because the suing business is very different from a regular retail business. Yeah. Since you both have a product, but you also are in a sense, delivering art and being creative. So mm. how would you think about the mindset of, pricing compared to a regular retail where pretty much everything you got price wars going on and pretty much set levels for products. How, how did you figure that out? Man, I think honestly, I'm only just now starting to grasp that because, you know, when, before you've kind of done your work, you know, uh, and you're, you're selling a, a creative product, you feel like you're trying to put a price on your heart. You know, it's like, 
it's like you've you've created this child out of your your artistic work and now you're telling it to grow up and go get a job when it's just so cute and little you know <laughs> um but yeah i think i think that's taken me it's taken me a really long time to teach them how to grow up and get jobs um and i think at first it started out with going okay you know you, the the costuming division is kind of going to be the one where you exercise your creativity and you go all out and the merchandising is a logistical product that, that has a demand and it has a fixed cost and you can look at the market and quantify that cost. Um, with costumes, it's a lot harder because how do you price creativity? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and there was an author that I was listening to a podcast interview with him the other day and he was talking about how he had promised seven books in one year to his publisher and three days before the deadline, his publisher called him and said, hey, we only have six books. Mm. Um, and he was like, oh, no, you do only have six books. And he realized he had to write an entire book in two days. And he did. He sat down and he wrote the whole book in one day. Mm. And fast forward a year later, that's his best-selling book. And so when he's asked, he says, when, he, when I'm asked, like, you know, when's the better time to create, you know, when it's scheduled or when, it, when you're... Um, inspired and he mm -hmm. says both you know creative creativity usually finds you when you're working mm -hmm. <laughs> and and that's how it's been for me too because I kind of had to start uh having a format for when I create because if I'm waiting to feel creative to make a costume it takes me months to work on that costume and I can't be held accountable and you can't charge for something that you can't be held accountable for so for me um I kind of have a, a structure around how I create. Um, when I start getting an idea for something, I start sketching it. And then I start, you know, going on Pinterest or on Etsy and like looking, looking for the materials that kind of spark it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm already factoring in the cost of those materials from the start. Um, so I have non-project based like hourly rate that I charge for when I'm coming up with these ideas and brainstorming. Mm -hmm. And then I have actual hands-on project. Um, right. And so it, it, it is at this point, a math equation, you know, and I think in the beginning, I was all creativity and no business, you know, and, and I suffered for that. I like I staggered through it, you know, and that's what led to the overworking because I didn't have a process and like a, a time tested pattern yet. Um, and so I ended up doubling down on the business side so much that now when the creativity shows up, it's practically scheduled. Um, and that's not to say it doesn't strike. It does. It's just now, you know, I'm friends with it. I'm not trying to catch it, you know, <laughs> now creativity and I can have conversations, you know, and we, we have an equal say in things mm -hmm. and it's not like an animal that I'm trying to catch and tame, you know, does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, that's a great analogy. I like it. It's like creativity is the wild animal that you got to tame with a little bit of business or else it will just go completely out of control. Exactly. It's that. like, I adopted a Mustang. I adopted a horse and it's, a, that's mm. exactly what she's like. You know, we have to have rules. We have to have boundaries, mm -hmm. you know, and she still gets to be wild and she still gets to influence the way we do things, you know, but she doesn't get to run the show. Things can go badly. Things can, you know, you'll get evicted. And talking <laughs> about that Mustang or your, your baby or just creativity in general, one thing that is well known through studies is that once you start getting paid for something that you like, uh, it's called intrinsic motivation, that joy that you experience from something. Once you add in an external factor like money, it can actually affect the intrinsic motivation. So it can take away 
some of the joy because hey now you're getting paid and you expect to get paid how did that did you did you notice any of that once you started out or how has it affected you and your business i've never been asked that question i think i think i noticed it when i started saying yes to projects that were not 100% in alignment with where I needed to be focusing my energy. Mm. So in the beginning, I said yes to everything sewing related because I, I needed to make the money because what I had done was I had chosen this creative path and said, you now need like your, my creativity is now responsible to feed mm -hmm. me. Um, and so float. I said, yes. Yeah. So I said yes to every sewing project under the sun and some of it, like I got in some weird situations. Um, But I started noticing it when I was saying yes to things that um, I was like making couch covers for people who were like mm -hmm. bringing me old couch covers, like covered in cat hair. And I was <laughs> like, what are we doing here? You know, I was just saying yes out of scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started noticing the creativity would wane when I lost my, my no, you know, and I learned through that to protect your yeses. You know, my yes is only reserved for the things that my heart truly, truly wants to do. And my creativity exists inside of that. It's in boundaries, mm -hmm. you know, so you start having boundaries with things that you don't prefer to do anymore. Like over the years, I have slowly weaned out alterations. Mm -hmm. You know, I rarely uh, tailor people. It's either for a red carpet or it's a dear friend um, or, you know, that that's really it. I don't, I don't do alterations anymore because they don't set me on fire my creativity mm. dies and I know how I know that is it's sitting on the rack for four weeks in a row and I haven't touched it and I've managed mm. to put it off you know so when you start putting off those creative projects you start to realize your heart's not even really wanting to do those and the, the problem was you didn't protect your yes you started losing your boundaries over the things that you will and that you won't do you know so you're saying to that creativity I want you to go do these things But you're just saying, yeah, go do anything. You know, once again, you've let it run wild and you mm -hmm. haven't gone, no, I'm reserving this creativity for that custom jacket that this artist is going to wear. And when he steps out on stage, he's going to embody his stage self and my creativity at the same time. I'm protecting that. Yes. And so when you protect it, it goes wild. Mm, I love that. And also talking about that. For people who are in that position right now where they suing couch covers basically do you have any practical steps for them how to transfer out of that yeah oh man that's the 80 20 rule have you ever heard that rule mm -hmm. but for the yeah. people who might not have heard it you can give a short run through it's 80 of your success comes from 20 of your activities mm -hmm. So for me, um, I ended up writing out everything that I did with sewing to make me money. Um, and I categorized them. I'm so, you see it, like I'm so linear and logical. I'm like, mm -hmm. we're going to write it out. We're going to make an algorithm. Um, <laughs> so I wrote out everything that I do with sewing. And so it's uh, custom projects, you know, and it's so costumes, right? And it's the backdrops and it's alterations and it's hem tag application and it's, uh, uh, you know, bridesmaids dress. It's, it's whatever I do to sew. Mm -hmm. um, and then I wrote out how much money they'd made me in the last six months. 
And then I wrote out on a scale of one to 10, how much I loved that thing. Mm -hmm. And I straight up averaged them. So like, it's so funny. I'm so logical. And I straight up averaged them. Like I would look at it and I would go, these are consistent twos across the border. Like I gave this thing a one, you know, it it might be making decent money, but I gave it a one. Mm -hmm. What would happen, you know, if I invested more energy in the thing that yielded a lot of money, you know, and that I did barely at all. And I loved or decent Mm. amounts of money. And I really, really love it, you know? And so I started removing the time that I was spending on things that weren't really earning me as much or that I wasn't really loving as much and investing them in the things that were truly moving the needle, pardon the pun. Mm -hmm. So you basically made an overview of one side, the return on your time and the other side, Mm -hmm. the the enjoyment of your time and balancing that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I started just kind of approaching it more realistically and going, okay, um, you know, this one thing is bringing in 30% of your income, but you're spending 70% of your time on it. Mm-hmm. We're upside down, you know? And then I would look at something where I'd made a costume in a week and it paid three months worth of bills and I loved it. And I went, hold on, hold on. Like you think that you need to do alterations, but you don't, you just wasted four months doing something that made you one month's worth of bills. Yeah, Exactly. Plus and it's crazy when you time. start listing it. Yeah, yeah. Like, why? what can we do to invest energy in getting more clients? Are we getting referrals? Are we getting, you know, uh, feedback? Are we getting, you know, the what, what people are actually saying behind our backs when we're not in the room? Are we getting that and learning from that and, and seeing if we can double down on those things that we really love that are making the money? Mm-hmm. And I think you already made a great transfer with the, the logical and calculating side because even though it might not always seem fun as a creative or for some creatives, it is really a beautiful counterbalance for that emotional and that spark and that creativity. So I I really like what you did there. And it also leads into a different topic that I had lined up, which is time allocation. And I'm curious, when you started out, how did you allocate your time for the creative process and then the execution and production of that? And mm. also managing the business itself, because that's part of it too. When I first started out, I had no structure. I practically slept at the shop um, and I just did whatever was in front of me. There was, there was no plan. It was just get it done, you know, get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started slowing down and going faster at the same time, because when I slowed down, I would notice that I would have three projects on the rack that used orange thread, you know, and two that used black. And instead of re-threading my machine on every other piece from orange to black to orange to black, Mm. I would batch everything. Mm. You know, so when I slowed down, I noticed I'd saved myself 20 minutes, like calibrating a machine, you know, or changing thread, or um, I would cut everything at the same time and sew everything at the same time, seam rip at the same time. Like even at the moment, I have four things across a different projects, different clients that all need to be ironed and I'm stacking them all up to iron everything at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, I just threw everything at the wall with no structure and I thought that I could just creative my way through it. Um, and now I have a, a, a strategy all the way down to how I estimate work. And so I have a whiteboard um, and every kind of project is a different color of ink, you know. And so uh, if I'm doing a custom project, it's in black. And if I'm doing merch, it's in orange. And what I do is I, I estimate everything. I sit there and I go, all right, that's going to take you one hour because 
what happens is I'll look at a rack full of things. I've got racks across the room and I'll look at a rack and it's full of things. And I'm like, this is a month of work. But then I write it, but you're looking at the physical space that it's occupying. But then I write it on the whiteboard and I go, well, that's one hour hemming. That's two hours pressing and doing all of the layers, you know, and that's this. And I look at it, I'm like, this is five days of work, Crystal. What are you doing? You know, why is it taking you a month to get this done? Mm -hmm. And so I'll estimate everything out now. And so the creative process lies in the doing. The business process lies in the prepping. Um, so I allow the business aspect to come from the front end. Um, and once that's out of the way and I've got my structure, then I can just, you know, flit around like a butterfly and be creative crystal, you know, and I actually get to enjoy it because the planning part is done. Um, and a lot of that has also come from learning when to outsource and learning when to scale. You know, I hit points of burnout and I, I would hire somebody to come in and help me sew. And then I would get 20 times as much done for, you know, a fraction of the cost because my time is worth the most, mm -hmm. you know? And so it was learning, you know, learning when to outsource and learning when to have people come in on your creative process and, and uh, losing that control meant gaining more creativity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And kind of rounding off the starting a creative business part, what would be your key takeaway or your number one tip for people, creatives starting out on their business? Get help. <laughs> I think your number one thing needs to be your mindset because I think that we're all doing different things for different reasons and different purposes. And I think a lot of people go into creative work to receive love mm -hmm. and not to, to do things from love. Does that make sense? Um, because yeah. when you're creative, you're not always doing it for the money. I'm not doing it for the money. The money came to me when I when I kind of surrendered it and was mm -hmm. like, all right, we need a structure. And the moment that I gave my creativity a little, some boundaries was the moment that things truly started profiting because I was able to start um, bringing people in to help me. And it freed me up so much to think of the bigger picture. Um, and I thought the bigger picture was this big and really it's like huge, yeah. you know? Um, the moment I had people coming in and taking their piece of the puzzle, um, I could kind of see it all come together. But yeah, I think the mindset of of recognizing as a creative, oftentimes you're going to do things for love and not from love. And you have to get right with that first, that you're creating things to serve the world and to better the world and to put it out there. Um, and to work on that mindset of of, for me, it was learning to step into the right brain a little bit allowed the left left brain to get more more um organized mm. you know it was like moving back and forth between left and right brain i think that you could probably articulate that better than me mm -hmm. but yeah i think allotting myself that creative freedom or or getting getting micro focused on the business aspects allowed me to be way more creative and way more like open-hearted in what i create because now the ideas that are flowing, like I have five years worth of business ideas in a yeah. trajectory, you know what I mean? And that's way bigger than the little alterations business that Crystal was exhaustedly running, mm. you know, three years ago. Um, it's just, it dwarfs that, Yeah, you know? I really like how you called it doing something for love or doing something from love. And I think one concept that that relates to in sport and performance psychology is outcome and process orientation. So in outcome orientation, I, I guess you would be doing it for love because you're so focused on the end result and the end result mm. would in this case then be 
okay, I'm doing it for the love and or the validation of the people or a certain outcome. And when or you're the doing, win. Yeah, the win, exactly. Yeah. And when you do something from love, you're really focused on the process. So actually doing the work and giving all the love and the attention and the quality to what you're creating in that moment. And that actually, the funny thing is people tend to be focused on the outcome. But once you start focusing on the process, then the outcome takes care of itself. It's, it's, I love this so much. Yeah. Yes, that's it too, because you, you fall in love with that process. You're not in love with winning the game anymore, mm -hmm. you know, because, because if you were the moment you'd achieve it, it would be so hollow and empty and you'd be stuck not knowing, you know, what game to win next. Whereas like when you fully love this process of becoming the process of building and making it, you know, what it could be, not even fully knowing what the outcome is going to be. Like mm -hmm. I said, like not even seeing that picture fully clearly. Um, you just, you fall in love with every day. So even the bad days, you know, you're happy about it because it's yep. like, it's a big experiment and you know, it's another day of playing the game. You bought exactly. yourself to another day to play, you know, and that's where the creativity comes out even more. Yeah, it's beautiful because once you start focusing on the process, you can basically be winning every day, even That's though it. the outcome might not be there yet or not there, still you enjoyed the process. So I think for me, if you want to get really broad, that's just the key to life right there. It is. Yeah, it is. Oh my gosh. No, I love that. I it's, it's, it's just being in love with the process. Mm -hmm. It's just being in love with, with, even on days when you have to make payroll and a check didn't come in, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. like, you've got 12 people waiting on a paycheck and you're like, yep, I got you. I'm working on it. I'm doing it right mm -hmm. now. We're figuring it out. You know, uh -huh. it's even on those days where you're like, you sit back and you're like, can we just pull that off? You know, mm -hmm. we'd had moments where, where, when it was, it started out just me, obviously for the first like two years, it was just me. Like, I was trying to create an income for myself, you know, mm -hmm. and boom, like all of this work had fallen in our lap. And I had ended up scaling up from just me to 18 people working for me in one week. Mm -hmm. Um, and like that, like a higher hiring a team will teach you to help you in creative work will teach you more than you'll ever learn in college. I'm telling you, it'll mm -hmm. teach you everything. Um, and, and honestly, like I, I kind of scaled overnight and had to learn those growing pains and understand it. And it's funny how the moment we kind of like rocked it out, we turned like 60,000 units of merch in two weeks, something insane, like an insane number. Um, and we sat down at the end of it and we we're like, do we just pull that off? And it's funny how that wasn't even work that I'm passionate about. But I got so passionate about playing the game mm -hmm. that I love doing that division. When we are in mm -hmm. go season, it's like three months of insanity. And I love it because I'm so passionate about the process mm -hmm. and like going back and course correcting the little, you know, and going, hey, last year we did this. It was a bit of a cluster. We're going to change that one little element this year and mm -hmm. let's try it out this way. And it's like the yeah, moment that you're able to give process. that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like give it the gas and go, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing when you're so in love with the day to day that mm -hmm. even the sucky days of moving 72 boxes in and out of your car because the truck didn't show up, you know, even that, like the very non-glamorous aspects of it become hilarious and fun. Mm -hmm. And we're all cracking up because, you know, you, you found people that like the process too. Yeah. I'm good. I'm really glad that you found suing and suing found you. It seems like a, a perfect fit. Yeah. Yeah, it's the process, it's the mm -hmm. experiment.
and I, I gotta ask, did you, can you also see my, my draft right here? Because the next topic that I was going to talk about, but you already talked, uh, you made a nice introduction is scaling the business. Yeah. Oh my God, that hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a good experience though. Like, um, so I, it's, it's a completely, that's how I market the business. It's a scalable sewing team. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's like, how big is your project? I will make my team be the size of your project. Yeah. Um, and it's only because like, I, I have, you know, a network of incredible people that do what I do and it's an ecosystem, you know, we're all helping each other out year round. So when something mm -hmm. like that comes across, you know, comes across the desk, it's like, heck yeah, let's go, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there was a lot of aspects of the process that broke down because, you know, like we talked about when you're first getting started, you know, if you get the business aspects right, um, it's a lot easier to be creative. Mm -hmm. Well, when you start giving other people your process and it breaks down, it wasn't a process because if, if other people can't take it and run with it, you didn't build a process. You just mm -hmm. built a way that you do things, yeah. you know, and there was, I, I kind of ran an experiment this last fall. I went on tour. So I took a one month tour with a K-pop star. Um, and so I went on the road with her and I did her wardrobe for the month. It was a full USA and Canada tour. Um, and it just circuited around the whole thing and came back. And then I flew home and three days before the tour left, we got a huge project in. <laughs> so, I mean, the huge. ultimate test and, drive. Oh man. And, um, you know, you learn, you learn as you go, you learn, I learned a, a cardinal rule there, you know, that you, you don't don't put somebody in charge just because they have tenure, you know, just because they've been there the longest. Um, I let, you know, you learn a lot that your, you know, you, your emotions have to come separate, you know, from your business choices. And it's hard because I operate on my gut, mm -hmm. but yeah, as you scale, you face all of these weird little problems. Like what happened? I gave you the handbook, you know, I, I gave you a, a play by play. Like I, I told you every sentence from where the light switches are to exactly how to handle every single client, you know, and then you come back and you're like, do I have a business? Like what <laughs> happened in here? You know, and at the end of the day, the product got out the door, which means we won, like they did it, mm -hmm. you know, but completely abandoning how I do things. And it, that's less of a lesson in how they operate and more of a lesson in how bad my handbook was, mm -hmm. you know, like, and you have to have that, that humility to back up and go, this did not go as I planned. Oh, that's the problem. My plan sucked, mm -hmm. you know, and learning that like, yeah, maybe your plan rocks for you, but it doesn't rock for everybody. Um, and so you don't have a process if, if it breaks down the moment you give it to somebody else, you know, or to several other people that don't know how to implement it. Yeah, for sure. And talking about transferring more into delegation and a, a coaching role, communication and feedback, do you have any key takeaways that, like you said, you have a process, you think you got it all figured out and other people should be able to follow through, then things don't go as planned. How do you communicate that and how do you give the feedback to the people that you work with? I wish they could pop on here because we would all be laughing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am really, really blunt. Um, I'm really straight into the point. Uh, but what I have learned in leadership as I've stepped out of the role of just being the seamstress and into the role of being a boss and uh, like, honestly, like a mastermind leader, like a coach, a teacher, because I, I teach people too. Um, it's been to ask better questions 
So somebody had said something forever ago, and I don't even know who it was. You might know, but they said the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. Mm. So the better your question gets, the better results you'll have. And so when things were breaking down, I realized that my questions were just, they were stupid questions. They were, they were $3 questions when I needed to be asking $3,000 questions. And so the better I got at teaching, it, it, or when I got better at teaching, um, and, and, and bossing, you know, <laughs> um, was, was when I started learning how to ask better quality questions that were truly empathetic to the person I was asking. Mm. Um, it's not about me, you know, so when you learn to lead, when it's, when it's just you, it's about calling the shots because you know you don't have another choice. When you lead other people, you become you're serving them. They're not serving you, mm-hmm. and that's the the moment that I realized that like I'm serving them and I'm here to serve them. And and as it like like as the outcome is we get a great product. That's when things really started getting better, and we weren't having as many hiccups or misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. Um, when I would tell them what I wanted, and they would bring me back something, you know, like we said, sewing is a creative work. You know, so you can interpret something completely different from what I said, you know, Mm -hmm. but um, when I start asking really good questions that empathize with that person, they're feeling heard and seen and understood and they want to try to understand me too, you know, so you're, you're building a common ground on, on this mutual respect and this fairness Mm -hmm. of what you're asking. Um, But yeah, like when I started, if, if I was upset about something I started asking questions, not as to why I'm upset, but as to why things were done that way. So, and not in a passive aggressive way, but in a, I'm actually looking to understand, you know, because you have as much of a right to be here in this space as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you bring worth to the table, you know, and that's why you're paid. Um, so I'm trying to understand, you know, why you called that shot or why you made that decision, because I don't know everything, you know, and I've had to make peace with that as I step back. And if I'm just leading, you know, I'm not doing the day-to-day work. I'm making payroll and talking to a client all day, you know, and I couldn't do the day-to-day work without them. And so I'm grateful that they're here or none of us would be making money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I step back, I have to relinquish that control, which means I also have to relinquish the fact that I don't know everything that's going on in the room. I wasn't there for the conversation that happened with the client when I left for lunch or, you know, so all of those little facets, you have to be humble and, and have empathy for them that you don't know the whole story. Um, and that's helped me lead better. And it's, it's such a learning process. It's such a humbling process to mm-hmm. scale because you could be so good at something and then you throw two more people into the mix and now you're terrible at it, mm-hmm. you know, and you need a new process. Um, and, and then as you grow even more, you learn that there's a tipping point. So you, you gain two people and you need more processes to keep things running smoothly. But the moment that you add an extra process that's unneeded, the whole thing falls apart. Mm. so simplicity is key when you're scaling mm. it's only I, building as much as you need yeah that's that's great and you covered a lot of a lot of interesting topics there that we could dive in for honestly hours but <laughs> probably <laughs> actually the other day at my my part-time job i had a conversation with a manager uh, because i saw that he gifted the other managers a book by simon Senek. I think it's called and um, leaders eat last it's called and it's exactly about what you were talking about as well is really 
when when I was younger, I I thought that when you're a leader, you just basically get the bus around everybody, and uh, mm -hmm. well, you have this idea, you say you're gonna do that, and people will fall in line, and that's it. But the more that I've grown it both as a person and in working with clients and coaching and just life in general is actually the other way around and as a leader you're there to support your team and like you said that's a beautiful point for communication are you asking the right questions so yeah that's that's really great yeah because it completely changes your mindset doesn't it you go mm -hmm. from from uh it's not i don't even think it's it's offense or defense anymore when you when you like deploy that empathy mm -hmm. you know you you're taking a step back and rather than being uh protective of what you've built because the moment you bring somebody into the things that you build you're like your your human nature says i've put everything at risk mm -hmm. you know i could lose everything <laughs> with mm -hmm. two wrong moves and that's not true mistakes are going to happen things are going to fall apart i had somebody make a twenty thousand dollar mistake last year I mean, and it's like, honestly, I was genuinely laughing and she was mm -hmm. looking at me about to cry because she didn't trust me, uh -huh. but I was genuinely laughing. Like, this is hilarious because it's just numbers. They're going to go up and they're going to come down, but you're never going to forget that. Like you're like, you hire people that will be, will, will always be harder on themselves than you would ever be on them because mm -hmm. you'll never have to discipline them. You know, that's mm -hmm. not what leadership is about. It's about yeah you know, serving them and just being good enough to them and being clear enough to them, you know, that they're helping you run that ship. But there's another thing too, when you, when you're younger, you look at, at bosses and think that they're not doing any work, uh -huh. you know, that they're not doing anything <laughs> when you're like, Oh my gosh, they never sleep. We never sleep. Mm -hmm. Like, And it's also, I love the idea of leaders eat last. I haven't read that one. I want to read that because it's true. Like when I look at let's say I'm looking at something that I pay my people a per unit cost. I charge per unit and I pay per unit. I don't even pay them hourly. Um, mm -hmm. I pay them per unit completed because everybody sews at different speeds. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to go through it, like you can make bank for sure. Some girls literally like bought cars off of a three month, you know, like merch run, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, and then others want to go slower and that's their hobby and they're enjoying it, you know, and they're casually making money. That's like a second income for their families. And that's like, both are awesome, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, everyone has different intentions behind it. Um, and so when I look at a project, I go, what is that worth? When I look at the pay scale, you know, what I'm paying out um, and that respect and that fairness comes into play. I'm not looking at what I want to make off of it. Mm. I'm not. And it's funny how it's, 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 it's bottom up. It's not top down. Like, well, whatever's left over, I'll pay them. That's mm -hmm. not how it goes. Like they're actually at the top of that pyramid, go, like upside down pyramid mm -hmm. going, okay, they deserve this much of this total cost. Yeah, and then it trinkles you know, down. Whatever's left, like I'll eat last, you know? And if we didn't do enough, then Crystal needs to get better at her marketing because at the bottom, you know, at the end of the day, this is about like, we wouldn't have the business doing what it does if I didn't have them here. So they need to make that fair wage for their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And another concept that I can relate to this and it's, again, about motivation and uh, people working for you. So what I heard you say as well is the, the autonomy that you give your people. So mm -hmm. there's a, a three factor. Um, I won't get into the theory 
too much right now. I, I might do another. Please do about it. it. But there's, <laughs> okay. there's three key components that can help with motivation. And one is competence. So basically, are you good at your job? Two is relatedness. So do you feel integrated into the environment that you're working in and the people that you're working with? That culture. Culture, you could say that's culture for sure. And the third one is the autonomy. So does that person feel that he has the freedom to make certain calls and decisions and or is it just a strict fall in line? Because if you don't have any autonomy, people will feel way less motivated because, hey, what am I doing here? I'm just following the script. What What's my take in it? And I love how that also return in your story and just having that conversation and figuring out like, hey, what happened here and asking the right questions and giving them that space. So that's really powerful. You know, it's, I never even linked those two things because for me, my biggest motivator as to why I quit my day job, why I'll never have a boss again, like why I built what I've built is freedom. It's autonomy. I need mm -hmm. that. I need that freedom. And so that's, that part has trickled down that I've always extended that to them. So mm -hmm. when we have work, it's how much money do you want to make this month? Okay. I'm going to give you that much work. Um, and so they choose how much they want to take on. And if I'm hurting, I'll tell them I really need help. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 10 times out of 10, you know, because I've always been fair to them and given them, you know, how much work they've wanted when they want it, they'll do it. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had nights in here that we've sewn overnight. Like we've pulled all nighters because we've had projects come in and I'm like, Hey guys, you'll get paid double. You want to do it? Really need you. And they're in here, you know, and we've got music playing and they're like, let's go, you know, and it's a great energy. And that's just it is it's that respect and that fairness. It pays off when, when you let that autonomy and that freedom trickle down and go, no, 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 you are your own independent person. You call the shots for you the way that I call the shots for me. If you want to be a part of this, you know, this misfit toy collection of people, you know, that I just love so dearly that we've just become, you know, some nights are going to be late nights, you know, and you've got the choice. It's up to you. Everybody, you know, I expect everybody to have boundaries the way that I have boundaries. So if it's not good for you tonight, stay home, you know, mm -hmm. but I'd really love to see you. I'd really love to have you. Um, and so it's like work optional. Um, but they also know like they'll go hard for five to six months and it'll be off for six months, but you know, they did great. Mm -hmm. So it's creating that freedom and allowing that to, to carry on throughout and not just being the one that, you know, white knuckles the freedom, like it's only supposed to be mine. Mm -hmm. And another question that I'm curious about that also has to do with autonomy is micromanaging and letting go of control when you're scaling. So I'm really curious, what was that process like for you transferring from basically a one person business into scaling up? How did you deal you're, with that? What was that like? You're asking as if I've already overcome it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's ongoing. Um, mm -hmm. I constantly have to check myself um, and like ask myself good questions. You know, are you are you upset over this one little thing because it's out of control? Or are you upset because somebody might have a better way of doing things? You know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a lot of it comes down to so being super self-aware and recognizing when you're white knuckling something versus when you're doing something to protect your business. And sometimes you, you do have to call the hard decisions, call the hard shots mm -hmm. and say like, the business will not be in good shape in a month, you know, if we continue and go about this or, Hey, I have one box of merch that wasn't perfect and I'm sorry, I have to bring it back to you. Um, and in the beginning, I just rewarded mercilessly, like what I loved. 
you know, like I literally, oh, in the beginning, for example, we were doing a merch run and we were sewing thousands and thousands of tiny tags onto hoodies. Um, and I just grabbed a random box out of the storage facility. Um, and I just, I, I, nobody knew that I was doing this, but every time they would drop off their merch, uh, before we had our new workspace, uh, everybody was just working from home. Um, I would check the quality and I just chose my favorite box. And I said, who stitched this one? Found out who it was. And I said, hey, you're getting a $250 bonus this week for having the best stitched merch out of like the list of people. Um, and man, the merch looked great the next week, (laughs) man, it looked great. And so I incentivized being amazing, you know, and that's not to say like, if something is bad, you know, you don't just ignore it. You know, we have quality that we need to adhere to, but in creative work, there's always varying shades of quality Mm -hmm. in the work, you know? And so you can only be the example and then reward when somebody else is able to duplicate that example really, really well. Um, because then they get a very clear sense and now it's emotional because money gets emotional, you know? So mm-hmm. <laughs> now it gets really, really emotional as not wanting to have it good. And you're, you're basically conditioning yourself to be great. Yeah. That's, that's really powerful too. I love that. Yeah. But it's, it's an experience. It's ongoing. It's, it's all, it's all in the day to day. It's all in the micro steps of, mm-hmm. of, um, of tight because I can totally be a control freak of typing up a text and then looking at it and going, why are you asking that? Leave them alone. Mm. You know, like leave them alone. It's Saturday. Are you kidding me? Have boundaries. So yeah, I don't know. It's I think we're all we're all learning balance and boundaries in business. You yeah, know? for sure, for sure. And we've already covered so much and it's been great. But do you have any topic that you feel that we should talk about or that we left out? You know, today, something that's been just just on my mind today in general is is moving forward, no matter how slowly you have to move forward. Because for me, the first, like, we were talking about this earlier, just the first three years of business, you know, two and a half years of business, I worked 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And I, I just throughout the pandemic, specifically, I've slowed down a little bit, almost because I was given permission, I felt like, to slow down. You know, the world collectively said, let's sit still for a second. Mm-hmm. And I did. And it's funny how you realize the stuff that's actually important and the stuff that doesn't really need to be done today. You're just creating all of these deadlines for yourself and self-imposing stress for no reason. And your creativity can't thrive in that. And so mm-hmm. for me, just kind of what's been on my mind today has just been like, progress is progress. And you know, even if you're just, you know, chiseling away at something in the micro a little bit today, you've made progress and you're probably outpacing people, you know, in, in the, the long run, if you're competitive, mm-hmm. you know, so it's the little stuff, it's the five minute meditation, or it's the, you know, at some point when I had this thought this morning, I was like, I want to start a podcast cool. All right. Well, that was my one thought of the day on that. Like that's as uh-huh. far as I'm going to go, you know, like I'm not going to sit down and write out like previous crystal would have sat down and written out her next six episodes yeah, at yeah, four yeah. o'clock in the morning. Because, you know, <laughs> I would just overwork myself and not realize that I would be draining myself of my own creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of learning that like, no matter how slow you go, as long as you're moving forward, you're moving forward because just we, we've, we've endorsed this, this culture of of overworking ourselves in America specifically. Um, like, I don't know how it is for you, but, but over here, it's like, if you're not, if you're not moving, you know, 
a million miles an hour and achieving a 90 hour work week, then you must just never amount to anything, you know, and that's not the case. Mm -hmm. It's like, I've made more progress in my, my mindset and in the, the, the big overall vision of where I want to go in the next 10 years over the course of the pandemic, Mm. you know, during a pandemic, I've made more progress in that mindset, um, in slowing down, you know? And so I think that there's a lot more, there's a lot more weight in that than we tend to give credit to. Yeah, for sure. And one analogy that I love to make, and actually I think the body and the mind are very similar in that way is that when you exercise, you cannot go 24 seven, you cannot, you'll basically burn out your muscles and you'll get mm-hmm. overtraining. And it's the same way with the mind, except for the mind, we always find a way to still push through and then eventually people completely burn out. But actually giving your mind just as your body the time to relax and to recover, it's so important, especially if you want to deliver peak performance. Because if you're running all the time, then you're not going to be able to get in that top sprint, both physically Mm. and mentally. So I love that you You get burnout. Yeah, yeah. I had a burnout uh, like two weeks ago, I had a burnout and I realized that I was burning out. And instead of trying to push through it and endorse like hustle, just work through it, you know, pretend you're okay and you'll feel okay. Uh I, I literally sat on the couch and I binge watched an entire TV show Mm -hmm. and I did not. sew for a full week and I had projects stacking up and you know, what's funny on Monday, I woke up ready to go hundred percent. And it's like the moment I just allowed myself and gave myself permission to rest mentally and physically, you know, was the moment it all started to kind of snap back in place. Yeah, exactly. Great. And now for the last two questions, they are a bit more general, but I always love to, to ask the people that come onto the show. So do you have any favorite mental skill or mental tool? that you like to use in your work. And I'm not sure if you want any explanation for a mental skill or mental tool, if you're not familiar with that term. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Like an exercise or like a a habit? It can be. So the second question, actually, you can maybe answer them both. The second question is, do you have a daily habit or practice that you love? But with a mental, mental, mental skill, basically, I mean, it can be very simple. It can be as simple as, okay, I'm feeling burned out. I'm going to step out and going to take a walk. Or it can be a meditation practice. Or some people have mantras that they repeat, uh, positive mm-hmm. self-talk, visualization. There are all these different, well, basically tools out of the mental toolkit that you can use. And pretty much anything can be a mental tool. Yeah, I don't know. I think I have a lot of different ones, but they're not ones that I run every day. Like I have, you know, I have different ones where last year I did this exercise called, um, called like, imagine your best year. And I literally imagined exactly what I wanted out of the year. And at Christmas, I was sitting with my parents and I realized I just had it. You know, I just did exactly what I had said and written Mm -hmm. down because the Christmas before that, I was working on Christmas Day to finish a costume to get it flown to the right city on the right day to match Mm -hmm. up with a rock star, you Uh, know, to get on stage and wear it. And I was literally working around the clock on Christmas Day. And I remember sitting there and going, never again, like Mm -hmm. this won't happen again. And that was like starving my creativity just because I was stressed out over, you know, over deadlines and not having boundaries with people. And, Mm -hmm. um, 
I sat this last Christmas with my parents and I was like, I'm just going to take the month of December off. And they're looking at me like I'm insane because they've always had day jobs, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I've earned it. I'm going to take the month off. And my whole family is like, what are you okay? You know? And I'm like, yeah, I I deserve that. I need that. I need that Mm -hmm. to reset. January is going to be wild. Little did I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, and so I did and I had realized, whoa, I just had my best year. And so there are definitely like different tactics and stuff like that, that I do that work, but there's not one that I run every single day. I do have little mantras that I think of, but I kind of call them like, I call them breath prayers, like where I say a prayer in one breath. Um, and I have those throughout the day, but there's one thing that I do do that I can't survive without. And that's, I journal every single morning mm. um, because when I wake up, and my brain starts, the overthinking committee takes over. And I am analyzing every single thing that I need to get done in today. And I'm like, we're talking the next six months worth of worth of things. Are I'm I'm gonna put them all on today's to-do list. I just I'm I'm compulsive about trying to fit, you know, mm. 10 days worth of work in a day. Mm. Um, and so the moment so I wake up and I make my coffee and I sit and I journal. Um, and I literally get all of it out of my head. Um, and it's over, over the years, cause I've been doing this for two years, every single morning without fail. Mm. Um, and over the years, it's become less about like my writing has become less about all of the things that I want to get done and more about my thoughts and my feelings towards all of those thoughts. Mm. So the writing has become more succinct, but my thoughts have gotten a lot more clear and calculated. Um, and I kind of get to the heart of why I'm overthinking. Like it's, it's a place from insecurity or anxiousness or attachments, you know, um, mm. or detachments, like whatever it is, wherever I'm at. Um, so I'm able to kind of kind of be more aware and more introspective over it um, rather than just spinning, spinning, spinning. And by the end of that journaling, and it's always 30 minutes of writing every morning, like clockwork, 830 in the morning. Mm. Um, And so I'll write and I'll have my coffee and I get it all out. And it's insane how much clarity I get. Like the moment I write the last word, um, it is insane because the moment I finish writing, I don't make my to-do list for the day until I finish that journaling. And I move over to the left side of the page and I write down the exact top three things that I need to do today. Um, and that is literally how I've built a successful company over the last two years, three years, mm. is is when I started getting clear in that and getting clear about how I felt about all those thoughts. You know, no more overthinking and it, it all has a place and a time. And, um, and it's just allowed me to have a lot more grace with myself. And one thing that I, I taken from both the journaling and what you said about goal setting is basically for me, the overarching theme that I hear is taking the time to reflect really and analyze Mm -hmm. and not always be so into the the process as fun and as hectic as it can be. Yeah. Asking yourself why, why you're feeling that way, why you're thinking that you know, cause that's when you're really doing the work, you know, and that's what shows up in your business. That's what shows up in the game mm-hmm. is like when you've, when, when you, you come to the table, I don't know, you just end up a lot more magnetic on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. You know, things come a lot more easily because your conversations with your clients are just, they're so purposeful and they're so focused and intentional um, that, and that's not to say that they're not like, you know, filler, like you, you have small talk with people, but, um, you're able to search better, you know, like right before I hopped on the call with this, this with you, I was talking to a client who, who he has, we haven't even worked together yet, but 
he's calling me asking for advice and you know and it's like who would I be like would I really love what I'm doing if I wasn't answering that phone and talking and we have the best conversations Uh and he's just getting started in becoming Mm -hmm. and I can see in him that he's in love with the process too Mm -hmm. you know and so it's like it goes back to loving that process because you love every conversation because you started out the day with a clear head and knowing what your intention is Mm -hmm. and knowing your why and knowing why you're out there on the field playing the game and life even gets better when you meet people who love the process too. So yeah. Yes, that's, that's this great. has been amazing. Uh-huh. And oh, I needed this. Be- before I forget, you said something about prayer in one breath. I'm not familiar. Breath prayers? Breath prayer. Ah, yeah. Do you, yeah, do you have so an I example? What, 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 what is a breath prayer? And do you maybe have one that you want to share? I'm really curious. Mm, yeah, I have a lot. I have a lot of them. I probably, you know what? I should write a journal and sell that. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think um, one of them, so like, let's say, I guess it, I guess you could call it a mantra, but like, if you're worried about money on payroll day, right? Um, uh the saying is like money flows to me freely and easily anyways, Mm -hmm. like, don't worry, you know? Um, or today's already been one. Like if you're stressed, you know, today's already been one, like Mm -hmm. it's already been conquered for me. It's already taken care of. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I pray throughout the day about different things. Um, and it's, it's, like lead me to the intentional work today or help me get done exactly, you know, what, what, what is intended for me to get done today. That way I'm not just filling in the to-do list to feel successful and productive. Like I'm supposed to be doing my life's work here. I'm not supposed to just be crossing things off of lists. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I would have to like, it just depends on the topic. It depends on what's on my mind that day. But um, I, I like it goes back to what I would journal and I start journaling about those feelings and about those thoughts. Sometimes those become the prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, like it just becomes a lot more restful. Your work becomes a lot more like rest than it does like hustle. You know, when you've got these different things throughout the day to cling to and you've got these different things to pray. Yeah, little pointers and reminders. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are we doing here? You know, like, like you can get so easily wrapped up, you know, in moving the needle and in achieving. I can't. I'm totally like an achiever and an ambitious Mm -hmm. person. And so a lot of mine have to do with slowing down and being intentional and being present Mm -hmm. Um, and just, uh, you know, not not budgeting every single minute of the day and like leaving room for that magic Mm. you know yeah thank you for sharing and i'm definitely looking forward to your book release (laughs) (laughs) i'll work on it i'll put it on tomorrow's to-do list (laughs) so if people want to know more about you and connect with you or maybe get a product from you where can they find you how can they reach out to you crystaldouglas.com that's the easiest place Mm mm-hmm Yep, K R Y S T A L D O U G L A S. All right, and I'll or just also Crystal Douglas on Instagram because I'm there. All right, I'll of course also link all of Crystal's information in the show notes, so also check it out over there. And yeah, unless you had any last things to add, I think this is pretty much a wrap. I'm happy, love it. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, thanks for getting on, and have a good rest of the day. You too. Wow. Okay, so. 
That episode was recorded in July of 2020. And if you like Coz's interview style, go check out his podcast, any streaming platform. It's Confused Confucius Podcast. He just does such a great job at asking the right questions. So he's able to pull a lot out of me um, that I don't think would have come out naturally in this format had he not been there to facilitate and make space for that conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Coz, for getting all of that. Um, I need to have him on my podcast and I need to interview him because I feel like a lot of that was about me and not enough about him bringing the things that he knows to the table. So um, if you're interested in that, let's let's invite him on. <laughs> um, if you liked this episode, if you like the podcast and you're feeling mega generous, leave a five-star review. Five stars only, by the way. That's, I mean, go all the way. Click all of the stars in all of the areas wherever you're listening, where you can review and make sure to hit subscribe if you're not already subscribed. See you next time next week on Pull the Thread.